seems every time you have your press conference, you bring to Austin, and I can't figure out how to do that. It's amazing. But this is the third or fourth time. It's not raining yet, but it's coming. And um, I'm having uh, some renovation work done on my house, and the entire back wall of my house is open right now, so I'm a little nervous about the rain coming. But it'll be okay, I'm told. Um, I want to start off by talking a little bit about what this year has been like so far. We obviously, it was a legislative session year. Our regular session started in January. We knew we were going to have some very significant challenges ahead of us. Um, I think we were here in February or March. I'm not sure exactly when your spring conference was, but we talked about some of the things that were already happening at that time. We seem to always be fighting for funding for our schools and fighting about school finance and how we structure our school finance system. So we knew that would be on the agenda. We knew that would be a, a big thing for us, as always. Um, this year, we saw a more concerted effort, especially on the House side, to really try to come up with uh, an overhaul of the school finance system, as opposed to just some, some of the smaller tweaks to the system that we've done in the last few years. And that effort really was um, credited to the House Speaker, Joe Strauss, um, his chairman of the House Public Education Committee, Dan Huberty, um, as well as a number of other leaders in the House who really said, we want to make this a top priority for 2017. We want to come out of this session with some meaningful changes. And they got the House to agree. Uh, the majority of the House supported their bill, uh, House Bill 21, that would have been a very comprehensive overhaul of the system. And it, it called for tapping, in, in, a, in a small measure, tapping into the state's rainy day fund, the economic stabilization fund. But it would have put an additional $1.6 into public education, which would have gone a long way. It would not be a complete fix. Uh, Chairman Beaverty and others have acknowledged that to, to really fundamentally change how we fund our schools would probably take two or three sessions to get done. But they saw this as the first step heading into that direction. And there was considerable support for that in the House. Over on the Senate side, it was made pretty clear from the get-go that they did not want to do a comprehensive rewrite of the school finance system. They wanted to just do smaller tweaks. And they wanted to appoint a commission, a school finance commission, to study the issue for two more years. And ultimately, that is part of what ended up being passed. So there will be a commission studying this for two more years. We haven't studied it enough. And um, we'll see what happens in, in 2019 in the regular session. Um, <clears throat> we ended up having an overtime session when we went into special session in July and August. Um, that was very much a manufactured crisis, in my opinion. Uh, there were some bills, you probably heard about how there were some bills related to um, the agencies that license our doctors some sunset bills that were um, on the must-pass list. If they did not pass during the regular session, there was the potential for those agencies to have to close their doors. We wouldn't be able to license doctors. That would be very, very bad for our state. <laughs> so these bills were kind of held hostage during the regular session and held up um, as leverage to try to get some other things passed that were priorities of the lieutenant governor and folks in the Senate. And so that's why I call it a manufactured crisis, that 
those bills did not pass, and that is what forced us to have to call a special session. <clears throat> and then, in large part, due to the pressure he was getting from Lieutenant Governor Patrick, uh, the governor decided to expand the call for the special session, and he announced uh, some 20 topics that he wanted the legislature to work on during that 30-day 30 30 special session. And a number of those were related to public education. Um, again, with regard to funding, he at first only wanted them to appoint the commission to study it. Um, thanks to considerable pressure from educators, and especially retired educators, um, they did end up adding to the, to the call an item that would let them study funding for TRS care to help our retired teachers afford their health insurance because those costs have been going up and up and up. The TRS board has had no choice but to um, raise premiums and, and deductibles and those out-of-pocket costs for our retired teachers who were struggling. I mean, it's tough when uh, you spend your life teaching and raising up our kids and then you retire and you have to make a choice every month between am I going to get my prescription filled or am I going to buy groceries. And it shouldn't be that way. We've got to take better care of our active and retired educators to make sure they aren't forced into that situation. So we are happy that in the special session, the legislature did take a look at this. They ended up putting in about half a billion more dollars for public education overall. That included 212 million to go to TRS Care, which enabled the TRS Board to bring down those, those costs just a little bit. It's, you know, it's still gonna be a hard pill to swallow, no pun intended, um, for those retired teachers <laughs> with, with their health care. But it did help, and we appreciate you know, every extra dollar we can get out of the legislature, we will take it. Um, we also had some very serious threats we were facing, both in the regular and special session. Um, vouchers is a perennial threat that always comes out with proposals to take some of that funding that would otherwise go to our public schools and send it through various means to private schools or home schools. And we have always opposed these bills. Um, we don't think we can afford to do that and fund our public schools when our public schools are already struggling financially. And we think it's wrong to send those money to schools that um, don't have to be held accountable for how they spend it or for how well they educate the kids. And we simply would have way, no way of knowing how that money's being spent. So we've always opposed these bills. We did again this year. Um, the Lieutenant Governor has made this one of his top priorities every session, but I would say this session more than ever before, um, he was working with outside groups and really pushing that issue hard. Um, at one point he came out and said, just let us have a vote. Just let there be a vote in the House. Because many times in the past, these bills would get filed and they'd make it through the Senate and then they wouldn't even get voted on in the House, fortunately for us. But, he, you know, this is one of these things where you got to be careful what you wish for because he got his vote, he got three or four of them, right? And in each case, the House overwhelmingly said no to vouchers. We had cases where two-thirds of the House voted no on those voucher proposals. So I think that sent a very strong message, but that effort is not going to go away. They're going to continue to push for this. Um, they're buoyed by some of the efforts uh, happening nationally and in other states. Um, with the Trump administration and his appointment of Betsy DeVos uh, to lead the education system nationally, she is a very strong proponent of vouchers. Uh, they're going to keep pushing this issue, trying to make some federal funds available to facilitate that. So 
we're going to keep fighting that battle. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, another big threat we faced this year, and I think we talked to you about this some in the spring, there were some bills to uh, prohibit educators from using payroll deduction for their voluntary association dues or union dues. Um, this was a very offensive attack on your profession specifically. Uh, the bills would have exempted um, certain other professions, law enforcement officials, police, fire, EMS workers. And when we asked about this during the hearings um, and in meetings with legislators, you know, the answer <coughs> kind of came back that uh, law enforcement people were more respectable or <laughs> more honorable or worked harder than you did. I'm not real sure what the rationale was there, but it was just a very offensive, very pointed, direct, pointed attack on your position, on your profession. And the purpose was to weaken the ability of educators and educator groups like ours to go and fight for you and fight for your students and what we think is best for public education. So we fought that throughout the regular session. They put it back on the agenda for the special session. We had to fight it again. Um, fortunately, and again, I, I would say this is because of our friends over in the Texas House, we were able to defeat those bills. And so you had a lot of, of, of friends in the legislature who had your back. And from the payroll deduction issue to vouchers to school finance, they took some votes that were hard votes for them to take. And I say they were hard not because it was a hard choice, you know, hard to decide what's the right thing to do here, but hard votes because they now have a target on their backs. By taking a vote, um, whether it's to put additional funding into our schools or to protect your rights as educators or do something for your students, um, they, they get branded and they're going to be targets during this next election. So I know that there is a great deal of um, <laughs> disappointment out there among educators and, and this feeling that, oh, you know, we just need to vote them all out. We need to get them all out of office. Well, just keep in mind that you do have some friends. You do have some allies in the legislature, and we need their help, and we need to keep them around. And that's one of the things we'll be working on as we head into election season, which is really upon us now. Um, here in Texas, because of redistricting, because of how we have drawn our legislative districts, the vast majority of our election contests are decided in the primaries. So they're decided in March, not in November, in the general election. Um, I know that is disappointing to a lot of folks, but that is just the reality of it. So we have to um, acknowledge that and make sure that we are getting the education community out to the polls in March for those very critical primaries. Um, at ATPE, one of the things we started working on in the 2016 elections, we were um, one of several groups who formed the Texas Educators Vote Coalition. And if you aren't familiar with this, I would encourage you to check it out. They have a website, texaseducatorsvote.com. Um, it's a brand, it's a newly rebuilt website that they just rolled out a couple of weeks ago. But this was an opportunity for us for um, Texas Association of School Boards, a number of the administrator groups, PTA, League of Women Voters, just a really diverse coalition to come together and figure out what can we do to make it easier or more enticing for educators to go to the polls. And we really wanted to create a culture of voting in our schools. We haven't had that in the past, to be honest. And we've been very fortunate to have the support of school boards and superintendents because as leaders in those districts, when they can go out and say, 
to their teachers, we want you to go vote. We're going to do whatever we can to make it easier for you. You know, give you time to get to the polls, give you transportation, um, give you incentives. <laughs> you know, these are things that um, we want to hear about and we want to spread around so that it can be done all over the state. <clears throat> Excuse me. We learned some interesting things in the 2016 election about what motivates educators. Um, we heard from some districts where the superintendent told the staff, if you go out and vote and you come back with your early voting sticker, you get to wear jeans to school. And we found out that that was a very big deal. Um, so what we did, I mean, we just we spread the word. We started telling other superintendents, hey, this is an easy, you know, no cost, kind of silly thing you can do in your district, but it makes a huge difference. And we saw those voting numbers going up in the districts that did that, amazingly. But this is what we need to do, you know, whatever it takes. Um, I've had a lot of people call and write to me and say, how do we get rid of Dan Patrick? And, <laughs> um, I, you know, we already know that he does, he has a Democratic opponent on the ballot, Mike Collier. Um, I can tell you that he will have a Republican primary opponent who will be a pro-public education person. I cannot announce anything beyond that, but you will be hearing about this soon. And so I just wanted to share with you, for those who have wondered about this, will there be an alternative to Dan Patrick? There will be, at least two. Um, so if you vote, you know, not if you vote, because you are going to vote, when you go to vote in March, um, you know, just let folks know that you do have the power to make some changes in 2018. And especially the education community has power to make some really big changes. When you look at active educators and the community of retired educators, we have well over a million educators in our state that could potentially go out and vote. And if you take, for example, a Republican primary contest from Lieutenant Governor, um, if we got 650,000 to 700,000 people to show up and vote, Dan Patrick would lose that race. So that's just, you know, putting the arithmetic out there and let you know that it is possible, for those of you who have asked about that, it is possible to make those changes. But the main thing is just getting our educators out to vote. Um, at ATPE, we have made um, an effort not to tell people who to vote for or who to vote against. You know, the main thing we want is just participation. We want everybody to show up. We believe y'all will make the right decisions when you get there. We try to give you as much information as we can. That's why we have our Teach the Vote project. We have our website at teachthevote.org. Um, we have a blog that we keep up year-round, and that's a great place to go and find out about education news and things that are happening. But what to, you know, try to get the candidates to share with us their views specifically on top public education issues so that you can factor that into your decisions. So we'll be updating that again over the next couple of months. We won't really know until December who is running for what, but um, I would encourage you to check that out and to follow us and just, you know, keep up with the changes that will be coming to our site and the information we'll be putting out there. Um, also, there, um, something that's kind of new this year, how many of you heard of the Texans for Public Education Facebook group? Um, that's something you might want to check out if you're on Facebook. This was uh, started by an ATPE member. It is very much a grassroots effort. Um, 
you know, he, he really just kind of got together a bunch of educators who were kind of fed up and said, what can we do to change this? And so the premise of his site is he is trying to get educators to pledge that they will support pro-public education candidates. And this group, you know, through a very grassroots democratic process, is going to come up with a slate of candidates that they consider to be pro-public education and put that out there for people to vote um, according to that slate. So it's it's something that's gained a lot of traction. I, I think he has like 40,000 people on the page now. Um, anyway, it's it could be a potential game changer this year. So it's going to be something to watch. And I think um, that movement working in concert with some of the other things we're doing, like the Texas Educators Vote Coalition, again, we're just hoping that this will make a big difference in 2018. And we can help shape what the legislature is going to look like when we come back, and hopefully we don't come back for another session until 2019. Um, that, that's what we're counting on. But, you know, we're going to be facing these tough battles again. And, you know, we still have to deal with school finance. We still have to deal with testing and our accountability system and so many other concerns. And there's only so much we can do if we are putting the people into office who are going to fight for you and fight for your students. So that is my, uh, my ask for you today is to please start talking to your colleagues, your friends and family about the importance of this election and especially the March election. And please be an informed voter and, and just get out there and, and let's see if we can make a big powerful statement. So I'm going to hush now. I'm going to turn over the mic to Mark and I think he's going to talk a little bit about some specific pieces of legislation or, I don't know, baseball hurricanes, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> We can talk about all of that. Um, so my name is Mark Wiggins. I'm a lobbyist at ATPE. Um, just for the record, I, I'm from Southeast Texas, so I always get a little nervous talking to English speakers because uh, English is the second language to those of us who grew up speaking Southeast Texas. Um, real quick, who all in here was affected by the storm? Okay, I thought there'd be more, but uh, you know, just briefly, I'll give you an update here. So part of my responsibilities is. Uh, watching over the House, the Texas Legislature, the adult state, and uh, the State Board of Education and the state agency. And at our last State Board of Education meeting, we got an update from the agency on some Harvey-related stuff. So just for y'all, uh, those of you who are out in the uh, affected areas, this might be interesting to you if you haven't heard it already. So the storm that came through Hurricane Harvey affected about 1.4 million students. Uh, 1.4 million we're in one of the 58 counties under the governor's disaster declaration. So that's like one in four kids. One in four kids. Um, so it's a big deal. The state has done a lot of things to try and um, provide relief. Uh, some of those things is the TDA has granted a lot of waivers, which you've probably heard of. Um, they've done some stuff with the uh, minimum instruction days and what have you. One thing that looks like it will not change right now, and there's been a lot of questions about it, is it, we are not hearing that there's going to be any change to the implementation dates for the STAR test. Um, and there were a lot of questions about that. Now, uh, Commissioner Morath was at the Texas Tribune Festival this weekend, if you go over there, that, and um, he was asked about it again, and he still seemed like that was pretty much where TEA was at. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that this is the end of the story, but I would say at this point it doesn't look like uh, anything is gonna happen to STAR. 
Now, with that being said, um, there were some pretty significant things that came out of the storm uh, in relation to educators. So just in Houston, I forget what the number is, something like 35 or 45 campuses immediately became shelters during the storm for kids and people who were displaced. And the commissioner at the latest State Board of Education meeting gave the credit to the educators being on the front line. He called it uh, an act of public service on an epic scale. And that was all you. And, and let me just say that during the regular session, when we were fighting these anti-teacher bills, part of the discussion had to do with first responders and who are first responders. Well, this storm proved that educators are first responders. So I just want to give you guys a round of applause. So I'll take you into the kind of the weeds of some of the legislation that passed during the session. Um, Jennifer mentioned TRS care. That was a big deal. We faced a billion dollar shortfall going into it. They did not put in enough. Um, well, they put in just enough to keep it from going away, but it was still very painful, the hikes that we saw. So during the special session, they tried to kick a little bit more into it to make a, a bit of a difference. That will be implemented in January, uh, January 1st. So outside of that, the House proposed putting in another $1.9 billion to public education. This is money that would have gone to benefit every student in Texas, gone straight into the basic allotment. Senate said, no thanks, we want to pass it down sure. So that's what happened to that. That didn't pass. Um, we also had some stuff on a smaller scale. Um, the individual graduation committees got renewed for another couple of years. And you remember that was supposed to go away. So those are going to stick around. Uh, we stopped the efforts to turn uh, your TRS pension into a private 401k. That was a pretty big figure. There's still people out there who are trying to, to convert that into what they had in the private sector. Um, and we made some pretty significant changes to the A through F accountability system. Uh, no shortage of criticism of A through F. Um, but there were some changes that the legislature made. For one thing, there were five domains. They dropped it down to three domains. And local districts are going to have the option of coming up with their own sort of local metric for scoring, um, which they'll be able to do here in, in the next few months. In a few months, they'll start working on that. Um, we did not get rid of the summative score. So uh, the score that labels each campus in each district, either an A, you know, A through F. That's going to stick around. Uh, there were a lot of tweaks, though, to the criteria that goes into each of those domains, which uh, I won't get into, uh, but you can, you can find it's the TEA website has all that stuff up there. Um, and the campus level A through F ratings were delayed to August 2019. So just gives everyone kind of a little bit more time at the campus level to figure out how this is going to be scored. Um, and uh, let's see what else. 
So a couple curriculum-related things have happened, and, and one thing in particular that might be of interest to, to all of you guys is, so there were some changes to the sequencing for advanced English courses. Uh, math as well, but uh, so what the legislature did was Senate Bill 853, I believe, 826, <laughs> what they did, there's a lot of bills. Uh, so what they did was they did away with the requirement that you have to take English 1, 2, and 3 before you can take an advanced English course. Now, what this is geared toward is students who may be transferred late, and so they're trying to take courses concurrently so that they can fulfill their graduation requirements on time. Maybe they transferred from um, Oklahoma or somewhere where the, it's not quite the same curriculum requirements and they don't have that necessary class. And then the other would be someone who, for example, failed in English early on and, and set them back a year. They could just take that English 3 and their advanced English course concurrently. Where that is right now, since the legislature passed it, it was signed and made by the governor. Now that goes to the State Board of Education, which is going to have to go through a rulemaking process. Um, in the special session, there were some, again, some school finance related things that Jennifer's already talked about, and I'll just give you the bullet points of the school finance bill that came out. Again, the House wanted to spend about $1.6 billion to have gone to every student. Again, ran into a roadblock in the Senate. What they were able to get was, you know, as, as she mentioned, just a little extra money for TRS care, about $150 million is going to go to, if, if any of your school districts are going to lose ACETAR funding, uh, this is a grant program that will help them. Uh, about $40 million went to small school districts, about $40 million went to some grant programs for autism and dyslexia. So some good things came out of that. We're also going to get a commission to study school finance, which we're going to have to watch really closely to see what they come up with. Um, and then, let's see, there was that, uh, there's a little teacher pay uh, thing as well. And uh, the governor came out, we were very excited, the governor came out and said, hey, teachers need to pay more. You need to pay more. Yes, we agree. This is great. Um, the only problem is, uh, he didn't want to pay for it. So, that really didn't go anywhere. Um, now we proceed into the interim, which is a period of rulemaking, which is a period of implementing all of the things that were passed during the legislative session. And that happens primarily at the State Board of Education. And as I mentioned, the State Board just met. Um, I think since we spoke last, they finished the English language arts teams, in English language arts reading, which um, I guess y'all already heard about, and uh, the Spanish language arts and antiques as well. Now, something along the lines of 500 people signed up to be on the TEKS review um, committees, and that really sent a message to the State Board of Education that teachers are really interested in being part of the TEKS review process. And they want to accommodate that. So what is happening is, in the last couple of meetings, they have been talking about a new way to do the TEAMS review and streamlining process. And 
from pretty much this point forward, they're going to use a new process that is going to incorporate a lot more educator input. Uh, instead of having just one group of educators that goes and, and, and digs into the teeth, they're going to have sort of a rolling group where they'll move you know, a few dozen people in for a couple weeks, and then they'll move in some more, and they'll kind of trade out. And what they're hoping to do is to just engage a lot more people. Because again, there's a lot of interest in being a part of that. And I would give credit to the State Board of Education, which may be surprising. Um, but at least this board seems interested in what you have to say. So we're going to work with them as long as that's the case. Um, let's see what else we got. And just for those of you who have um, some concerns about TRS care, you should know that the TRS uh, is going to be on a, I think they're currently in the middle of a statewide tour where they're doing questions and answers and some very long extended discussions about what is happening to retiree health care and, and they'll answer your questions. We have um, some information on our website about when that is coming to you. Also, at the agency level recently, uh, there was another little piece of legislation that had to do with computer science, and there was a bill during the legislative session that will allow advanced computer science courses, some, uh, to be to get credit for English as a second, for a language other than English. So you'll get your loan credit for a uh, computer science course, like computer programming, because you know, sort of the big idea being that you're learning a programming language that should count as a language. The, uh, the board is in the process of figuring out exactly how that's going to look, because we're getting into an area, especially um, like with AP computer science, uh, where it count, does it count as a math credit? Does it count as a language credit? They're going to have to decide if it counts as one or the other or both. Um, they're also looking at some of the performance acknowledgments for uh, diplomas to show for students to show that they're college ready. And there are going to be some decision points coming up with regard to the ACT Aspire test. Um, how many of the sections of the ACT Aspire need to be taken in order for a student to qualify. The test currently has five sections, and uh, reading and writing are two of them. Uh, and currently, if they, if they earn the benchmark score on two of those tests, they'll get a, a designation on their diploma. So is that fine? Do we want to keep it there? Do we want to expand it out to, you know, say, math, science, and some of the other sections? They're also going to face a decision point on the SAT acknowledgments and where do we want to set the cut score for the uh, English reading um, and the math section. So there's the two sections of the SAT, where do we want to put the cut scores. Right now, uh, they're a little bit lower, I think, than what the SAT benchmark is, the, the College Board, where they set their benchmark at. So there's going to be a discussion at the State Board about where we want to put that performance benchmark for our students. So if you have a real strong opinion about that, uh, your board wants to hear from you, and they're going to do decision making on that. And um, if you want to relay uh, your opinion on that, you can always 
reach out to us and, and you know, you'll let them know what you got. So thank you. Uh, I think, you know, that just kind of is a brief summary of uh, some of the sort of more, more granular bits of legislation that have come out of the legislation. But I think the overall picture is, uh, as Jennifer mentioned, there's this crazy attack on educators, and it, it is really only coming from a very small but very loud corner of the legislature, concentrated specifically on the east side of the Capitol building within the Lieutenant Governor's chamber, um, which is frankly, it's, it's, it's difficult to understand what the issue is over there. Um, but credit where credit is due, the Texas House has fought tooth and nail to try to get some kind of funding, of relief, of support for educators, for schools, for students, and have just run into a continual roadblock in the Senate, which is kind of baffling. And that is the purpose of a lot of what we're trying to do with showing you guys where the votes are because the votes tell the story of what's important to these members of the legislature. Um, do you value schools? Do you value students? Do you value teachers? Well, all you have to do is look at the voting records and you can tell. And it is so important that the people who stand up for you at the Capitol stick around and that the people who say, well, public education is not important, get the message that, yes, it sure as heck is. So that's going to be a group effort that I hope uh, we all go out to the polls and, and make, that, make that message clear. So thank you for having us. And um, I guess if we have a little time, we can answer some questions. Yeah. Not everybody at once. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Why are you not supporting schools? Uh, that, that's just one thing. 
No, I would add, just from more of a campaign perspective, I mean, if you get involved with the campaign, um, whether you're supporting an incumbent who's running for re-election or somebody new, that's really the best time to build relationships with those folks and to you know, have some face time with them where you can share information about what our concerns are. Um, so through the Texas Educators Vote Coalition, one of the things we're doing is we drafted a model policy on encouraging educators to vote and creating a culture of voting. And we've been trying to get all school districts in the state to adopt that resolution. Um, a number of them already have, but that's something that you might want to mention, check to see if your school board has, has adopted that resolution yet. Um, TASB actually put it out as model language that they can use, so that's one thing. But working on a campaign, and if you've never done it before, and if you you know, maybe you don't consider yourself to be that political. I mean, they need everything from policy assistance to licking stamps, not that they lick stamps anymore, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so they really, they need all the help they can get. I mean, obviously campaigns are expensive, they're looking for financial support, um, but they also need just, you know, elbow grease, and then they need people to just show up and, and help with all sorts of tasks. So, um, I would encourage you to do that. It's a, it's a great experience just to say you've worked on a campaign. Um, also, with the primaries coming up, um, after your primary election, um, there are precinct conventions. And so this is um, a step that leads towards district-level county conventions, and then there's a state party convention, and then there are, you know, there are national party conventions even. But if you're interested in, in getting involved in party politics, one of the things that happens at these conventions is they adopt resolutions to shape the party's platform. So whether you're aligned with Democratic or Republican Party, um, this is a chance to shape your party's platform with regard to education issues, in particular, anything else you might care about. But there's an opportunity to go in and you start at the precinct level, you could bring forward a resolution and ask them to adopt I mean, for instance, we've had some of our members, um, we helped them draft a resolution opposing vouchers and privatization of our schools, and they took that to their precinct convention and got that adopted locally, and then there's a chance for it to be considered um, critically to become part of the state party platform. That's what we really like to start influencing. So we'd really like to see educators and just people who are connected to the education community getting more involved in party politics to shape those official platforms to serve as a precinct chair. There are many, many opportunities to become a precinct chair. So that's something that you might want to look into as well. And we have information about this on teachers.com.